Thank you to those of you who remembered to stand in queuing me up. <laughs> I appreciate that. I sometimes wander when I preach, so I need to give you guys the head up, heads up, that these mics are going to stay on. So if you're chatting or anything, they're likely to hear it out there. <laughs> so I just wanted you to be fully informed. That's all I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for having me here, you guys. Golly, it's coming home is so good. I, I you know, I just like to think about things. I, I, I was licensed to preach here, and I was looking at it just this morning. And do you know that it was, you know, just to make sure it was still in, in, in good, you know, standing. Uh, but the date is what got me. June 18th, 1978. A week from tomorrow, 40 years. You're old. <laughs> <laughs> Forty years, and I'm telling you this now, so you'll have time to get the party together. Uh, <laughs> I was here as an intern pastor uh, from Jay Osley's Baptist Preacher 101 class, and uh, you guys embraced me in wonderful ways. Tom and Carol were my Sunday school teachers then, and what wonderful memories I have of that. So it's always homecoming for me when I get to be here at Lakeshore. Uh, I also want to clear up any confusion that there might be about Aaron and Sakina. Aaron is my son, Sakina is my daughter-in-law, Josephine and Devin are my grandchildren along with Diamond, Aranisha, Aaron, Shay, Terion, Shay, and Ariana. Aaron came to Cross Ties as a young guy, probably a tween, and just over the years we adopted each other. <laughs> At some point it happened, I'm not exactly sure when but it was something that needed to happen. And I'm very grateful for him. And I'm very grateful for Sakina and for her recognizing that he needed to get out from mama's skirts <laughs> and go uh, spread his wings in a little different sky. So I'm really, really pleased that this is the sky they chose. And uh, I'm grateful that they are here because I know that you will love them as I love them and as we love them. So thank you for that. Also, uh, just, you know, as a reality check, did, did Kendall and I swap haircuts? <laughs> just, you know, a little bit, is that? It's just a little freaky, isn't it? I, I don't know. Okay, let's get down to it. I always like to start with this. The gospel is a scandal. The gospel is offensive. And if you hear the gospel and you aren't offended, you didn't hear the gospel. So my job to some extent is to offend you this morning. So... If you are, that's okay. I'm okay with that. And I hope you will be too. The scene that we have here this morning in Mark is a dramatic scene. Did, did you get the, the, the feeling of these forces crunching together? Here, Jesus and his apostles are working overtime. They didn't even get a lunch break. Now, when you're working hard and selflessly for the kingdom of God, criticism cannot be far behind. It's, it's close at hand. 
And what came at Jesus was particularly powerful. First, we are told his family comes. Now, they no doubt have been at home talking about him. And somewhere at dinner time, they decided that he had flat run off the rail, that he had gone around the bend, that all this uh, was just getting to be much too serious, and clearly he had gone and lost his ever-loving mind, and they had an obligation to go and get him and take him under tow. Secondly, there were the teachers of the law. I always expect to hear a boo hiss when I say that. <laughs> like the old villains. But the truth of the matter is, these were the good guys. In this scene, in this time, in this place, these were the good guys. They were respected scholars. And in a culture where you were justified by the law, you first had to know the law in order to be able to do the law, and nobody knew the law like these teachers of the law. These were the justified. They were the good guys. If Jesus had run off the rail, the teachers were the rail. So here we have two groups. And they should have carried great authority, family, religious leaders. But they did not carry that authority with Jesus. Jesus seemed to have an unusual clarity about himself. He had a rock-solid anchor set deep in the greatest reality, so he was able to see life and its circumstances with eyes uncluttered by the need for acceptance or belonging. From this emotionally charged, dynamic, pressure cooker environment, Jesus comes forth with some very important yet difficult teaching. Now here's a little aside. When we hear Jesus' teaching, we need to be getting really clear. Because we're supposed to be teaching the things that Jesus taught. If we're teaching other stuff, we should probably quit because we need to get really good at this. It's the other part of the Great Commission. Go baptize. And it says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Teach them what I've taught you. Teach them what I have given you. That's what we are supposed to be about. And while I got to tell you, I'm not so much a person who would say that we are a people of the book. I think we're a people of the spirit. But the book, when we are led by the spirit, tells us what it is that we need to be teaching. So this is what Jesus is recorded teaching here. Number one, evil means cannot. Understand this is not a command. This is a point of fact. This is how it is. Evil means cannot produce good ends. 
Violence will never produce peace. This is very important that we come to understand these things. Because what we do is we start thinking that there is some point in time that we're going to reach when everything is going to come to a fixed position and never change again. So if we do this one last violence, this one last act, then peace will be in place. But that's not true. We have no ends. All ends are in God's hands. All we have are means. That's it. That's the entire thing. We have the process. And so how we do what we do is everything. Secondly, confounding good and evil is the unforgivable sin. We have a lot of that going around, don't we? A lot of it. We're swimming. I'm not even sure we can come up with what is good anymore. And it's a good thing that Jesus said no one is good but God alone <laughs> because that's the for sure. This is very difficult. We'll talk some more in a minute. Three, there is no priority that is greater than God's will. Okay, here's the thing. You and I, and this is an assumption on my part, you and I are reasonably good people who generally would never commit an overtly evil act. Is that correct? Generally, would you agree with that? I mean, we're nice. But the problem is what lies within our subconscious. The rules and norms we follow every day, these are often our unexamined values that were interjected into us by our environment, our family teaching, our church teaching, the era in which we grew up, and all of our choices concerning how we interpreted all of that, uh, as well of, as the collective values of our socioeconomic position. Let me give an example of what I'm talking about in terms of how those things come together with, how, with what Jesus teaches. This is an example from my life. One day, I was um, thinking about Jesus' teaching as it is found in Matthew 5, verse 42. Go ahead, anybody. Oh, I'm sorry. No. Give to the... I'm playing to the Baptist church and all. Give to the one who asks you. Well, the first thing I wanted to do was to check out, could I get to what my unconscious value around that is. What do I think about this that I may not even be letting myself know? And I learned this. I was taught both directly and indirectly that this teaching was just a little bit off. <laughs> if you do what Jesus teaches here, you're gonna end up in poverty and Jesus couldn't possibly want that for you, right? Besides, there simply needs to be limits to giving, you guys. 
God limited giving, give your 10%, move on. When you work hard for your money, God knows you deserve nice things. You deserve to live in a clean, safe neighborhood. You deserve a nice travel schedule and plenty of leisure time. You deserve to have your children in private schools and you deserve to be unperturbed by poor people who could have more if they would just try harder. Hey, that sound familiar? Am I the only one that sucked this up out of the environment? Well then, I, I had to ask, do these values taught me by my family, my church, my school, and my general cultural environment, are they in keeping with what Jesus taught? Do we know the answer? Gosh, I hope so. The answer is no. So what now? So I took it to the logical extreme. I took it out to that place where my fear resides. And I said, what if someone came and asked me for my house? Am I free to follow Jesus then? And I realized this, that if a fire burned my house to the ground, I'd be just fine. If a tornado blew my house away, okay. If a flood washed it away, or a plane dropped out of the sky, or a sinkhole swallowed it whole, assuming that no one was home, I'm good. It's just stuck. But if a poor person comes to my door and knocks on it and says, hey, can I have your house? Oh, no. No, that, that's, that's an entirely different issue. I am not free enough. And let me be clear about that. I'm not playing. That is an issue of my freedom. I am not yet mature enough in Christ. I am not yet free enough to be able to do that. But let's narrow this down a bit. I know this is an extreme scenario, but it, it trickles down into the everydayness of our living and how we perceive ourselves and others. If I lose a dollar bill, no big thing. I got another dollar bill. Dollar bills aren't all that hard to come by. But if a guy on the street corner or a person on the street asks me for a dollar, I can get all wrapped up in the values I was taught, but that have nothing to do with Jesus' teaching. We make judgments about who this person is. We believe that we know them and all the mistakes and all the bad choices that they have ever made in their life. We believe that we are responsible for how they'll use that dollar. We get resentful to be put in that position anyway. We stop at the corner, we look away in hopes that they won't engage us, and eventually, in many places, we enact laws that will remove our discomfort because in our culture, our greatest value is comfort. The way of God is different. We are to look on everyone with love and grace, everybody 
every time. No one is higher or lower. We're all equal. No sin is greater than another. Giving is about the giver. Am I free to give? Can I go and sell all I have and give to the poor? Can I be like Zacchaeus and give back half? Can I find my freedom in that? You know, what the other guy does with the dollar, that's his journey, not mine. Unless I sense a different direction from the Holy Spirit, I must approach these opportunities as times of learning. That person becomes my teacher. They're teaching me how to be a better person of love. We confound evil and good. We believe that evil means can produce good ends. We live as if there is a priority that is greater than the will of God. The deeper issue is how this affects the church. This one or anyone. Be clear about this. We are the church. We cannot go to church. Today you did not come to church. You came to Sunday school maybe and worship. And maybe during the week you'll go to a business meeting or to choir practice, but you cannot go to church. We are the church. When we leave here, church is not over. We are still the church. Or in Paul's words, Christ. The church is supposed to be God's instrument of transformation in the world. But instead, in many places, the church is dying. We, in fact, find ourselves again and again the guardians of the status quo. I think that's because the church has oversold itself as a place to gain eternal safety. Go to church, believe in Jesus, and you can add eternal salvation to your 401k, your gated community, your extended warranties, and your insurance policies. The thing is, believing in Jesus was never about that. It was never about adding to our feelings of security. It's just the opposite. Believing in Jesus was supposed to give us freedom to transform us into people whose love demands what is right for everyone. What I'm saying now is for us as the church to move out of our confounding evil with good and away from using evil means to get good ends and to understand that God's will is the highest priority, we must move from believing in Jesus to believing Jesus. This is not an easy shift. We're talking about tough stuff here. Because what I'm talking about is a willingness to look at and evaluate the values that drive our decision making at all levels.
and I almost said at home, at church, and at school, you know, those, those three things that we're always talking about, but that's not what I want to say, because we are always the church. At home, at work, at school, we are still the church. So these distinctions simply don't exist for us. Our decision-making is never outside of that reality, that reality of being a member of the body of Christ. This growth, this growth requires, we grow exponentially in self-awareness. It demands that we be willing to do the hard work of ferreting out our prejudices, our vices, our personal preferences, and to be willing to let them go for the greater good. When we were putting together the Gospel Cafe, we were just having the worst time trying to figure out colors. Until finally we realized God doesn't care. <laughs> this, is, this is just an issue of personal preference. Are we, how can we just get through this? Let's just make a choice. And once we got there, by golly, we could choose paint and all that other kind of stuff because God didn't, God didn't care about that either. <laughs> Don't argue over little things like decor. Those things that sometimes just break a church down. I was in a church one time that split over whether they're going to have pointy scissors or rounded scissors in the primary department. Is that not ridiculous? We must be willing to look at the deep wounds of our lives to come to understand how they guide us in our living today and to be willing to have them healed. It means, yes, most of us need help to do this. Here's the thing, you guys, if your leg was broken, would you go to the doctor? Or would you sit at home and say, oh, I can do this on my own? Yeah. But when our hearts are broken, when our souls are broken, yeah, I can do this. I can't do this on my own. I'm weak. No, we need help. And that's why we have Marty Sutter. <laughs> and people like her. <laughs> We have therapists who can help us to figure these deep issues out. Don't be afraid of that. Go do it. Do it quickly because spiritual maturity and emotional maturity are so intertwined that you can almost not tease them apart. We must be willing to let go of all the petty theological arguments we use to keep us from having to take seriously the teachings of Jesus. In fact, I've found that te the teachings of Jesus cannot be understood outside the, of living them. We have to actualize them, put them into reality. Then we come to understand them from experience. And remember, talking about something is not doing it. We can talk about hunger in Sunday school, but nobody got fed, y'all. We have to put feet to that conversation. Make it happen. And when the church meets together to make decisions, and i got to tell you, this is where the rubber hits the road, you guys. I brag on you guys sometimes about your forward thinking and, and how you, you, you're taking up stuff for poor people who don't have fans or food. And I love that about you guys. I really do. But 
our experience, at least at cross ties, is that mission's pretty fun. There's lots of good strokes in mission. And, and you know, you can get together some good literature for Sunday school and good sermons and all that kind of thing. What, what really tells us who we are is when we're making decisions together. We have to come to this place with a deep, deep respect for one another so that we will listen to what everyone has to say without sitting there thinking about what it is that I want to say. I'm just, I'm going to listen to you. And I'm going to be self-aware. I'm going to ask myself throughout the conversation, am I beginning to feel anxiety? Am I anxious about something? If it is, what, what is that? Am I feeling angry? Why, why am I getting angry? Do I feel like I need to change the mood in the room so I'm going to crack a joke? Just lighten it up. So I'll be more comfortable. Or can I desire whatever it is that God has for us in this situation? In my experience, no one person holds all the cards or has all the truth or knows the right direction. You see, God works among us. Truth and all of those things are somewhere out here. And we have to find our way to that. But if we're arguing about silly things, or if we are arguing in ways that have more to do with values that have nothing to do with Jesus, then we're never going to get to what God is leading us to. I learned a, a word in Baylor, religion department, is hermeneutic. I bet you guys are familiar with that word, hermeneutic. It is a, uh, an interpretive tool. The hermeneutic could say of all scripture, but I'm going to say particularly of the New Testament is love. You heard it here first. I don't know. <laughs> the hermeneutic of the New Testament is love. Everything is about that. It's the way we have to come at everything in life. Even our decision making at church. I must first seek to love you before I can decide with you. And always be slow to criticize and quick to encourage. This movement takes time. It's a very difficult movement to make. So be patient with yourself. Be courageous in your self-discovery and be kind in your interactions with others. Here's the word you've been waiting on, finally. <laughs> My friends, Lakeshore is such a special, special local expression of the body of Christ. And you've done many courageous things like you know, licensing me, and more recently, you're becoming an openly welcoming and affirming church for the LBGTQIA community. I'm sorry, I get it mixed up. You have a wonderful spirit presence. 
and you are, you are forward thinking and moving. And I am deeply grateful for you, still. I encourage you to go deeper, becoming ever more view, ever more formed by the likeness of Christ, wherein you, like Jesus, have a deep grounding in the greatest reality so that you cannot be swayed by the powers of this world, the presence of authority, or the tyranny of personal desire, so that you will not confound evil with good, and you will know that God's will is the highest priority. Amen.